The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 122. Let us go to the house of the Lord, a song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Sarah, and hello, friends. Great to see your faces, even if some of the time it's only half of your faces. Uh, for those who of you are putting on face coverings during the singing, uh, grateful to, to be with human beings uh, during worship, especially those who are part of our church family. And uh, that's actually what I get to talk about today, uh, what it means to be part of a church family and what it means to be together and what God's purposes are in that. But before I do, I want to uh, alert all of us, whether you're in here Uh, Whether you're out in the breezeway or in an overflow room or whether you are at home uh, participating in this service there, uh, there is one black book and it's called the virtual black book. And uh, all you need to do with a phone, with a computer, you're very welcome to do that right here and now if you want, with a phone, with a computer, with whatever device you have to go to christprez.org backslash black book. Uh, that's one word, and register uh, one per individual or one per household uh, to let us know that you were here. We, we, we are, we're so appreciative just knowing that you were here, and there's also opportunity to share prayer requests and any other uh, things that you might need from the church right now. And also, just as has been the case the last couple of weeks, tomorrow, Monday, starting at 12 noon, reservations will be open uh, for uh, services, in-person services, next Sunday. So all those things being said, uh, it's time to get into this, uh, this message. Uh, anybody seen the Terminator movies? Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, right, is, is like the, uh, the big guy who's commissioned to terminate the Terminator. Uh, right? The Terminator is this robot. He's a cyborg and he, his function is to assassinate people. Uh, he's a robot assassin and uh, you know, there are a whole lot of Terminator movies because nobody can assassinate the assassin robot. Uh, you can take an automatic weapon uh, you know, with, and, and just put a hundred bullets in him and, and, and the metal will just turn to lava and it will sort of reform itself back into its original condition and then he's off to the races assassinating people again. And he just seems impossible to kill. So it does raise the question, what does that have to do with anything? (laughs) And what it has to do with is the church because there might be some who would think, you know, uh, is the universe right now waging an assassination attempt on worshiping 
communities. We spent a good part of January emphasizing how important it is for healthy Christianity to be fully present with the local church every single Sunday. And then we had to start emphasizing how important it is not to be fully present with the local church every single Sunday when COVID-19 hit, and for good reason. But now that we're starting to move gradually back into gathering together and realize that there are many people who still cannot do that or feel nervous about doing that and uh, we still consider you being uh, here with us uh, even if you're uh, worshiping with us remotely. But I I put on my social media uh, last Sunday afternoon my feelings about our first gathering back last week. And my feelings were this, that it felt like combination of a family reunion of Easter Sunday and being in a, in a left behind movie. Felt like all of those things. And it just feels off. And yet it also feels wonderful uh, to have uh, many of you here and to know that there are gonna be more and more people returning over time as vaccines are developed and as as immunity is developed. I know some of you in here, I know that you've had the coronavirus. There are actually a lot of people, if you're nervous about people not having face masks, like a lot of them have already had coronavirus and so they're not a threat. Uh, But uh, we're not all there yet and so we're in this weird season. I was actually in a conversation with another pastor of of a large church in Nashville and I, I asked him, what have you learned about your people during this time? And he said, I've learned that my people like having a good reason not to come to church. (laughs) And and I thought, well, I don't think that's true of our people. That's not what I'm hearing from from our people. I'm hearing how people miss each other terribly, long to be back together. There's a big hole in their hearts, uh, et cetera, not being able to be in worship together. Um, And I think he was just joking with me, but, um, and it may be true of some that, 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 that some just actually kind of like not gathering with the church anymore. Uh, but th- for those who, in whom the Holy Spirit is active, and those who are alive to Christ, you're still alive to the local church because to be alive to Christ is to be alive to the local church because the two always come as a pair. They go together. You can't be tight with Jesus without being tight with his wife, with his bride. And the truth about the church, and this is the hopeful word for a season like this, is it's more resilient. The church is more resilient than the Terminator. The church cannot be killed. Jesus said he will not allow the gates of hell even to prevail against the church. You know, the whole New Testament church was formed under persecution in the Roman Empire. To the end that the church father, Tertullian, even said that it's the blood of the martyrs that has become the seed that gives birth to the church. And Eugene Peterson observes this. He says, going to church is voluntary. And yet, there are more people at worship on any given Sunday than there are at all the football games or on all the golf courses or fishing or taking walks in the woods. Worship is the single most popular act in this land, bar none. Hebrews chapter 10 encourages the people of God who've been away, actually that's the context of Hebrews, 
people who've been away from gathered worship, Hebrews 10 says this, let us consider how to spur each other on toward love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit, as has become the habit of some. Two pressures were going on in the early church. Number one, persecution, and number two, plagues and pandemics, as is the habit of some. But encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So to the scattered church, the writer is saying, be careful not to become complacent while you have to be away. Because when the time comes where you don't have to be away anymore because you're no longer COVID vulnerable, because there's been a vaccine, because there's been a cure developed, and so on, which we anticipate that that will happen, let's make sure that the the necessary habits of this season did not become long-term habits later on. Don't make your absence a habit. Now, if you need to be online right now for the foreseeable future, uh, we consider you being fully here. We consider that you are fully here. But in two or three years, uh, if online or or no church has has become habituated, you will only be partially here. This is a unique context right now. Uh, And we will miss out on your presence. uh, And you will miss out on the benefits of being with the body of Christ and the family of God. What What does the writer David say here about the gathered community? He says that's where security and peace are, within the walls on the Lord's day. And so let's unpack that. Two, two headings today, the people we all need most and the purpose we all share together. So let's talk about this, the people we all need the most. There, there, there are three primary features of the gathered body of Christ. One is we are family, we're family. In verse 1, David writes, I was glad when they said to me, let us, there's a collective there, go to the house or to the home of the Lord. And in verse 4, he says, this is decreed for Israel. Israel is all the people of God. The, the, the contemporary uh, uh, word for that is the church. It's for all the church. Let us go. You know, three times a year at that time, all the people of Israel would, 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 would head toward the temple in Jerusalem. They would ascend a hill. That's why these are called the Psalms of Ascent. These are the songs they would sing as they ascended the hill to worship God and give thanks to the Lord together. And here David identifies his fellow worshipers as brothers and companions. Not people I go to church with, not mere acquaintances, but brothers and companions. This, this, this jives with the familiar, the familial vocabulary of the whole Bible. You, you walk through the Bible and you see that God presents himself as our father, that Jesus presents himself as our husband, uh, that, that, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit bring us together as brothers and sisters to each other. When Jesus teaches us to pray, he says, pray our Father who art in heaven. In Matthew chapter 12, when uh, when, when, when Jesus is out in the community and his family is looking for him and somebody says, your family is looking for him. He says, who is my family? I'll tell you who my mother and my brother and my father and my sisters are. It's, it's everyone who hears the will of God and does it. The people of God. I'm more part of the church than I am part of the Saul's family. 
Do you understand that? I am more part of the church than, than I am part of people that I am bound to by blood and DNA and genetics who don't know Christ. This is the first family, the church. We really see how this family dynamic of the church hits home when we're in crisis. And there's several in here who, who understand what I'm talking about. You've been in crisis and you have vivid memory that you will never forget of how church people shared your burden with you and helped carry you through that. That's part of what the church does as a family. This past week, two, um, I got two calls from people in our church that received devastating news. One was a devastating diagnosis of someone who was too young to receive such a diagnosis and the other was just last night of someone whose sister died in a sudden car accident. She has no idea what to do. That's just this week, you guys. And in both instances, the first phone calls that were made were to the church. There's a reason for that. Those who have been church people for a while understand that part of why the church is there is to carry a load that cannot be carried by an individual, by a couple of roommates, by a friend group, or by a nuclear family. There are certain things that are too heavy to be carried by those entities alone. And that's part of what the local church is here for, to be family, to take you in, to show up, to share, to help bear burdens. So we're family, but secondly, this is part of why we gather. Part of why we gather is that we would not choose each other for ourselves if given the choice. In the same way that I don't get to choose what personalities my children will have, I may get to choose to try to have children uh, with my spouse, but I don't get to choose what their personalities or their stories will be. I don't get to choose what their decisions will, what decisions they will make. I don't get to choose that. I've shared this before. My, my wife, Patty, has been married to five men and they've all been me because I change. We all change. We go through peaks and valleys. We don't get to choose. And this is why David says the tribes of Israel go up. I think this is very intentional. There are 12 total tribes and all of them are part of Israel. And the thing about a tribe is that each of the 12 is unique, unique in its personality, in its customs, in its norms, in its cuisine, in its opinions, in its politics, in its history. Each tribe is unique and yet they're all coming together to one place. The fact that this is a Psalm of David who includes all 12 tribes is remarkable because David is part of the tribe of Judah and he's including all 12 tribes, including the tribe of Benjamin. And the tribes of Judah and Benjamin have been at odds with each other for a good bit of time because of Saul, David's predecessor, who was part of the tribe of Benjamin. You may remember that, that, that Saul tried to act as a terminator and rallied uh, the people around him when he was king to, to, to 
to terminate David because he felt threatened by David and his ascending popularity. And so based on that, there's all this rivalry and then, and then God puts David in the position of king in the place of Saul after Saul dies in battle. And so it's not just David replacing Saul, it's also the tribe of Judah replacing the tribe of Benjamin on the throne of Israel. Stay with me with the significance. The first question that David asks after he becomes king is, is there anyone from the house of Saul to whom I can show favor for Jonathan's sake? Jonathan was Saul, Saul's son who was close friends with David. Is there anyone from the house of Saul? He doesn't say, is there anyone from the house of Jonathan? He says, is there anyone from the house of Saul, the terminator, who's now been terminated? Is there anyone from his house that I can show favor to? And what you would expect is the opposite. Bring me all of his descendants and put them to death. That's what they did in those days to prevent a coup. But instead, David is looking actively for somebody from Saul's house to show favor to. And, and they bring in a young man named Mephibosheth, who is disabled, who is a young man with special needs. He's described as a young man who is crippled in both feet. He's immobilized. And he says, O king, please spare me. What, what have you to do with a dead dog like me? I mean, look at me. I, I can't hurt you. I can't hurt anyone. And David said, oh, no, you've, you've got it all wrong. I didn't bring you here to assassinate you. I, I brought you here to adopt you. There will always be a place for you at the king's table. This is how the church behaves. The church loves its enemies. The church sees the possibilities that the people who cannot and do not and will not get along and unite outside of these walls. When they come in, everything changes. Growing in Christ includes rejecting social Darwinism and Nietzschean will to power, both of which are built on the idea that the strong eat and crush the weak to dominate. But those who are part of the bride of Christ get on their knees, take up a bucket of water and a towel and wash the feet of even their own betrayers. We wouldn't choose them for ourselves, and yet there's something in there. There's something in saying, is there anyone from the house of Saul to whom I can show favor that, 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 that moves us forward in becoming the full version of ourselves in Christ? The last thing is, the last reason why we need this gathered body so much is that this is the gathered body that spurs us on. Did you catch that word when I read Hebrews 10? Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. We're, we're walking distance right now from the steeplechase. Uh, many in our church are equestrians and, and even have horses in your, on your own property. And when you hear the word spur, you associate it with, with an irritant in the side of a horse that, that's very intentional. 
from the feet of a human. That spur is there not to injure the horse, but to irritate that horse into flourishing. To, to get that horse from, from a, a, a trotting, um, you know, prissy little thing to a Kentucky Derby contender. It takes a little bit of spurring. And the same thing happens when we love each other across the lines of difference. We're a cross-generational church. We have four generations. That means a lot of different political perspectives. Here's how it can play out. Just a week, week and a half ago, I got a call from a staunchly Republican mom in the church whose staunchly Democratic daughter invited her to a Black Lives Matter march. And because it was her daughter, she went. And she said that it was at that march that my daughter and I got into some really significant conversations. And my daughter said to me, I'm not asking you to uh, suddenly become part of this political movement. I'm not asking you to be part of a political movement at all. I'm not even on board with all of the political movement, not wholesale. I'm asking you to enter into the affirmation that black lives matter. Put the politics aside and let's just deal with that. And, and, and then the mother is able to say, oh, I think I understand. Because all these years, I've been talking about the affirmation of the unborn. And I don't want to associate with everything that happens in the political pro-life movement because there are certain behaviors and certain you know, aggressions that, that, that I really don't want to associate with and that people on you know, the other side of the political aisle associate the whole movement with. I, I, what, it, what it's been for me is really an affirmation of dignity and humanity. And, and you're saying that that's what you're saying too. Like let, let's, let's put the Bible in the center instead of partisan politics and, and we're about affirming the dignity of every kind of human life. And this, this mother, who would have never considered going to this march on her own or entering into that kind of conversation with anybody except that it's her daughter, relayed that this was one of the most meaningful four hours that she's ever spent in her entire life. She learned something. You know, Christina Cleveland from... Duke Divinity School says, if you want to understand your own blind spots, if you really are a humble person who wants to become more like Christ, even more than you want to put other people in their place and win arguments, then get into community with somebody who shares your Christian faith and does not share your partisan politics and stay in community with them all the way through the presidential election and after. See what you learn about you. And by the way, as you enter into that relationship, stay aware that while there may, there may be a speck in this other person's eye, there's a log in yours. And so that's your biggest problem in that conversation is the log in your own eye, and your smallest problem in that political conversation is the speck in your brother or sister's eye. See how it works out. We need irritants so we can go from trotting like a prissy, useless food consumer 
to a derby contender in things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are we still friends? Okay, so this brings us to, to the purpose that we all share together. Why does God give us gathered worship? Why does he give us four generations and multiple political persuasions, etc., under one roof? It's because being irritated inside these four walls is part of your spiritual formation. Being challenged by the people around you is part of your life's purpose to learn what it really means to glorify God and enjoy him forever and to be formed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Twelve tribes. That means it is probably best to have 11 things about your church that you don't like. 11 things that don't scratch the itch of your own personal taste. So whenever I travel, I try to follow my own preaching and find a local church. If, if we're, you know, maybe we're on vacation or visiting relatives or something, and I said, be at the local, even if you're not in Nashville, find a local church and worship with them on Sunday to be part of the body of Christ. And we do that when we travel. And I find myself internally becoming critical of two things, the music and the preaching. The music is substandard because what you don't know is that one of the songs that we sang this morning, there was one person who had ever heard the song before 7 a.m. this morning. And I bet you can't even begin to guess which song it was that they just learned because we're in Nashville, people, and that's what they do. And so it's so easy to get critical of the music and of the sermon, because that's what I do, that's what I do. And so of course I'm thinking, well, you know, that was good, but I would do this the other way, and I don't know if he got the interpretation right on that one, and I wouldn't have used that illustration. Oh, I don't know, I think they're, they're falling asleep by now. The critic, the church analyst. And then I heard a sermon from my friend John Tyson, who pastors a church in New York City. And it was about these things. And he said to his own church, you don't like the music here? That's okay because it's not for you. It's not for you. It's for God. I was like, oh, wow. All right. I'm going to have to remember this next time we're out of town on a Sunday. And the next time we were out of town on a Sunday... We found a little church and there were 20 or so people there and they were led by a bivocational pastor and I'm thinking, oh great, this guy's a full-time real estate agent and, and he's doing ministry on the side. Okay, Scott, no, remember what John said. Remember what Tyson said in his sermon. Stop being a consumer and the music was sincere and off-key. The sermon was beautiful. And I thought, I've really gained some insight here because genuine, genuine off-key music is 20,000 times better than disengaged Nashville music. When you can get both together, that's amazing. And I think we have that. But genuine 
heartfelt, toward the Lord, off-key music is better than something that sounds and feels like a Ryman performance where we're honoring him with our lips but our hearts are somewhere else. I also gained the insight of what faithfulness looks like because I thought this guy, this is somebody, he could be at a church like, like I'm at and, and he could do this full time. He's got what it takes. And yet this guy has been 25 years at this one place with these 20 people, faithfully serving like that from his spare time as if it was the only thing that he did. I learned a lot more just from a man's act of faithfulness, or what Peterson and Nietzsche both called a long obedience in the same direction. I had to get over myself. I had to get over my belief or or, or at least my feeling that the church is somehow a performing arts venue or a shopping center rather than a family. And that the purpose of worship is not my personal fulfillment, but spiritual formation of me and the people around me into the likeness of Christ. The purpose of gathered worship is not to make me comfy and inspired, but to make me great. And what Jesus said about greatness is this, if you wanna be great, then get on your knees, take up a bucket of water, stick a towel in it and start washing feet because the great ones are the ones who serve. I had to get over myself. Look at what David does. David's a king. He's the person in power. He can do, say, dictate anything he wants. And here's what he says. For the sake of my brothers and companions, for the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good, you plural, meaning the people of God. I'm seeking your good. What made David a great king unlike his predecessor Saul, is that he did not act like a king. He acted like a servant, which made him a true king, whose purpose, it's right there in verse 4, is to gather the people of God to give thanks to God. I'll get to that in, in a second with my final thought. But one of the member promises that, that we make here at Christ Presbyterian Church when people join is do you promise to support the church in its worship and its work to the best of your ability? David is putting on display what this looks like. And here's the thing, it's not drudgery. When the Holy Spirit is activated and when a vision for, you know, loving Christ is animated, you will love his wife. You will share his loves The more grown up and the more great we are in Christ, the more joy we will get in these things. One thing I've never personally understood, and this this is truly a curiosity question, it's it's by no means a statement of judgment on anybody. Because I realize people have all sorts of reasons, but one thing I've never understood is Christians who don't like church. I don't get it. I don't get it because if you don't like my wife, I, I have to ask myself the question, do you really like me? 
Do you really want to be in community with me if you don't want to be in community with the one I love the most and whom I've pledged my life to? And you don't want to have anything to do with her. Do you really want to have, do, do you really want me at the center of your life or do you, do you want me just traveling around the periphery at your convenience, kind of in your pocket, your personal consultant and assistant rather than your center? You know, Eugene Peterson says this, one of the afflictions of pastoral work has been to listen with a straight face to all the reasons people give for not going to church. There are too many hypocrites. It's only a day, it's only one day that I have each week to sleep in, and this is the one. If I pointed out the inadequacy of one excuse, three more excuses would pop up in its place, so I don't respond anymore. I listen, I go home and pray that that person will one day find the one sufficient reason for going to church, which is God. Psalm 122 is the song of a person who decides to go to church and worship God because he or she wants to. An excellent way to test people's values is to observe what we do when we don't have to do anything. I think this, this, there's a commentary in here somewhere about those days when we're not feeling it. And believe it or not, I have days when I'm not feeling it, where I don't emotionally want to be here for one reason or another. But it's really not about what I feel. You know, Peterson would go on to say, our feelings can lie to us. The real test of our value, what we value, and the real test of what we love is, is not how we feel, it, it, it's how we're acting. You know, Kathy Keller tells this story about a season of her and Tim's marriage. I, I think this is in their book, The Meaning of Marriage, but she's also taught it publicly. Um, about the time in their marriage where she felt more affection for Tim than, than any other time in their marriage. And she said, it was the season in our marriage when I was immobilized and sick and felt less attractive than I've ever felt. And he continued to show up. He continued to love me. He continued to serve me. He continued to, to care. He remained attentive when I was at my least attractive. And that, that caused a well of affection to rise up in me. And then, then Tim would circle around and say, well, well, there was a well of affection that rose up in me as well during that season. Because it's as C.S. Lewis said, the way that you fall in love with somebody is to start loving them. Practice love, and then the emotions come. We have it all reversed in our sort of individualized, American expressive individualist way of thinking. We think, well, I gotta feel it before I do it. It's actually, the human engine works the opposite of that. You do it, and then you come to love it. Ask, ask any of these guitarists who spent oodles of hours practicing scales, who still do. Ask Mick Jagger, who in his 70s still does vocal runs before every concert. Ask. When you commit to it, you, you come to love it. What compelling reason do we have to fixate our love here? It's the king who didn't act like a king. Philippians 2, though he was in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself 
nothing. He let himself get terminated so that the father could respond with a yes to the prayer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Is there anyone from the house of Adam to whom, Father, we can show favor for my sake? And then the father, not because we're choice people, because, but because we're his chosen people, says, I've got some pretty crippled people. They're immobilized. They can't get up and move their feet at all. And they, they look at themselves with self-loathing. They think of themselves as dead dogs. Let's tell them there will always be a place at the king's table for them. Let's start there. You know, the Lord's Supper is the family meal. And it is not enough to satisfy your hunger. It is not enough to quench your thirst. It is only enough to whet your appetite to come back week after week after week after week for more as a sign of a future that is yet to come. And so as we prepare to come to the Lord's table together, I want to ask you to stand with me and we will affirm the Apostles' Creed together before we do that.